0: Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from... Actually, I'm in a hotel because I came down with COVID. Yep. And uh, because of that, I had to move out of my home because my wife, who is a doctor, is not COVID positive. And I needed to leave so that she wouldn't get infected. Not only for her safety, but also because... She is responsible for the health of other people. So I am in quarantine until, um, I don't know, a couple of weeks. But I I'm also, also have COVID, and it's very difficult for me to focus on things for very long or even talk for very long. So uh, for this podcast, I've done something a little different. I've, I've asked you guys for help. And a couple of you came through for me really, really well. I'm going to play some clips from folks who helped me out. Uh, And that's good, good stuff about van life and a nice tale from the road. And then to round out the episode, I'm actually going to insert one of my older podcasts called Oddments, which I find entertaining. You might not. And I understand if you want to shut it off at that point, that's fine. My goal is to get through this illness and then be back to normal for the next episode. I would like to start by thanking Liz, who is just amazing in what she did for me. She created a nice list of things about minivan van life, and she has brilliant insight, and I think you will really enjoy this. So without further ado, here's Liz.
1: Liz's Guide to Minivan Life as a way into van life. So reasons why I think minivan life is a great way into van life. First of all, it's incredibly stealth. A minivan can park in situations where a cargo van can't, both in terms of getting into parking garages, but also you can drive to a residential street, park somewhere where there's not a house facing you. So you're not right in front of someone's house, you're sort of on a a side street open the door, close the door, and it sounds like you parked, got out, and went somewhere. And if your ventilation is good enough and your windows don't fog up and you haven't put anything on the roof, you're actually genuinely stealth, which is great flexibility and peace of mind. Next, of course, minivans are exceptional for gas. That's pretty obvious. And the other reason is barrier to entry. So a used minivan is a very cheap thing to get. And then if you don't make any modifications, you can do van life in it for a couple months to see what you think. And then if you don't like it, you can resell it. And so you can have had a van life experience for super cheap. So some things are harder in a minivan, but there are also things that are significantly easier. So one of the things that's easier is ventilation. In a big van, you need something like a Van Air fan, fan on the top. In a minivan, you can get away with using a little rain guard for the windows, cracking the windows and opening the back vents, and that creates quite a breeze. And if you need a little bit more because you're in a warmer climate, you can actually use little USB fans. You can mount them to the back vents, and they bring air in, and then the air goes out through the front cracked windows, and you can get quite a breeze going. So you don't need the whole van air setup, and that also means you don't have to cut any holes. So ventilation is actually easier in a minivan because it's so small. So the next thing to think about is power. And there's basically two situations you're going to need power in. You're out in the wilderness or you're driving around in urban areas. So if you're out in the wilderness you can have a fold-up backpacker's solar panel that charges a little battery if you need it for your phones and maybe a little bit of lights. You won't need a fan at night nearly so much because you can open the windows wide wide open. So your power needs are reduced. There is the issue of the fridge so you may need to eat carefully and choose non-refrigerated foods during that time. If you're driving in the city, you have access to the alternator. So what I did, I did have a solar system, but there was a chunk of time where I had tripped a fuse and didn't realize it. So I did it this other way, which if I were experimenting from scratch sometime in the future, I would do it this way. I had um, some little cell phone batteries, 20,000 milliamps, which is basically two amps. And I plugged them into the 12 volt ports on my car, the ones that had little keys on them. The key means this will only work when the engine is running. So whenever the engine was running those would charge. That was enough to do my lights and my cell phone and little electronics. Uh, It was also enough to do the fans for the first part of the night. They would kick out partway through the night. I'm not sure when but by then it was so cool that it wasn't really a problem. So that was good enough for that. If it wasn't you can always get either a Jackery or a A battery from an auto supply store, they have them that are stored up to use as a portable jumping tool. For the fridge, which is the final power suck, the Alpacool that Jeff recommends, that I also recommend, has a setting where you can set it so that you can run it off the starter battery. And if the starter battery gets too low, the fridge will shut off so i didn't have that fridge it would have been a better choice if i did i would have done that but i would have had also again from the auto supply store a little they have these batteries that are the size of a paperback book that have little cords on them that would give me peace of mind in case the cutting out didn't work and i did end up with a dead battery so if i had that sacred backup totally would have tried that for the fridge i'm not sure i necessarily would have used a fridge if i had that do over again because the only real deal breaker that I needed was a little bit of milk and you could probably do that in a little cooler with some ice. So a fridge really is an optional thing. So bathroom is the next thing. You probably don't need one. Women can use pee bottles as well as men. You just need a peanut butter jar with a wider top. For solid wastes I carried like a fold up toilet seat and like a little human kitty litter style bag. I never used it once. There was always bathrooms everywhere, but I'm still glad I carried it. I didn't use my spare tire either, but having it gave me peace of mind. So if I ever got sick or something like that, I had a bathroom option in the van. For cooking, I used a backpacking stove because either, again, I was in the boonies and then I can pull everything out and stick it on a camping table, or I'm in the city. In the city, I use the Road Pro. The Road Pro is magnificent. So you plug it in and it cooks while you're driving. I made rice in it a lot. So you take a little loaf pan, you put twice as much water as you put rice in it, cover it with tin foil, and it will cook into rice in a little over an hour. And then also in there, I would put some kind of instant dinner. So I like curries with chickpeas, butter chicken, whatever. You can get them frozen, but you can also get them not frozen. Either one will work. If you get them frozen, you can use them to keep your milk cold. Uh, and you just set that to cook while you're driving. So either backpacking stove or that was awesome water you can use uh, bungee cords to take a smaller water container and just bungee cord it to the back of either the driver or the passenger seat now you have a gravity fed water system and underneath it i would put a big bottle that had a funnel on top and that means i can flip the little spigot i can wash my hands brush my teeth it could operate hands-free and then i close it up and i was in and out of the car so much that just dumping that was not a big deal. So the final thing that is a little bit different in minivans is how you deal with windows. The beginning part is the same as with a regular van. You definitely need reflectix, which you just cut to the shape of the window. Mostly you just stick it in there and it holds. If it doesn't, you use Gorilla Tape, which you want on hand, because it is absolutely magnificent and solves every problem. In addition to that, you wanna pay a little bit of attention to screens. So in a normal van, often they'll have a max air vent or something like that, which has a screen built in. If you're using USB fans, of course you can have a bug problem. So I spent forever trying to design like pop-up screens or duct tape creations and like all kinds of complicated things. Then I saw someone on YouTube who had just taken cloth mesh and had just gone around and tucked it into the edge of the seal. And I went, look, sure enough, there's a seal that goes all the way around the window and it kind of attaches with enough friction to the side of the van that you can just stuff the the screen in that way, which is super easy, way better than anything that I had thought of doing. Uh, And if there's any parts that slide out, you can use your good old Gorilla Tape. The screens do not play super well with the Reflectix because they're both trying to go into the same place. So what I did was for the back vented windows, I had a permanent solution. I always left the Reflectix up. So then I could really perfect my screen, Reflectix, flap, Gorilla Tape creation. And then for the middle windows, which in my van rolled down, I sort of had reflectix that went most of the way up and then a little bit of a screen with a reflectix fold kind of thing there, which was a bit more work to set up and take down. And then in the front, I actually had a partition to the front. Um, I used a quilt that I got from Value Village and some Velcro... Gorilla tape failed me trying to hold up a quilt. So I took a couple of little screws, which I put into the ceiling, which held really well and the holes were almost invisible when you took them out at the end. Um, I found the partition was better because I was genuinely trying to be stealthy in some van life hostile areas. And a bunch of reflectics around the front would have been a little bit more obvious than I would have liked. So that's it. You can get a used beater minivan you just need to buy some gorilla tape some reflectics and some screens maybe a battery and a usb fan those are super cheap and hopefully borrow a few camping supplies and you can be on the road for a summer and it is magnificent and simple and easy and fun and even if you have dreams of a more complicated build this is a great way to get your feet wet and also to discover what you need, what you wished you had, what you actually used. So that can really inform a better and more complicated build that you might do later. So I cannot recommend Minivan Life enough.
0: Well Thank you so much, Liz. That was wonderful. I really enjoyed listening to that. And I, I think you make an excellent Van Life podcaster. Hint, hint. Uh, I realize I just announced that I had COVID and didn't really explain too much about the details. So just very quickly, I'm fine. I have what is called a mild case of COVID. Um, it's not fun. I don't recommend anyone get this. Keep wearing a mask. Keep social distancing. Get the vaccine when you can. Uh, my worst symptoms are, as I described, this brain fog. And, uh, and I can't talk for very long. It, it's difficult for me. So... Um, I'm fine. Thank you for any concern you might have. And, uh, don't get this. You don't want it. It is now time to hear from the rather amazing Hal Bidlack, a person I'm proud to call my friend going on, oh, 17 years or so at this point. But he was nice enough to include a little tale for us, and here it is.
2: While not exactly van life, this story does have something to do with tales from the open ocean, if not the road. A number of years ago, Jeff set up a series of cruises for a skeptics organization he and I were both involved in. One of these cruises was to Alaska. And for dinner each night, we would have the people attending, some several dozen folks, at various tables. And at each table, we would have someone from the organization, myself, Jeff, others. One night I was there and two people were there. I really didn't recognize they hadn't taken part in many of the events. And as I always do, I started the conversation by playing a little game, saying, let's talk about uh, an interesting way to break the ice. I want each person to suggest where, if they had a time machine, they would go, if they could only go for five minutes and take a look at something. The selections were kind of normal until we got to this one gentleman who, first of all, said, well, I'll speak for my wife, which certainly caught my attention. And then he explained it was his intention to go into the future, not the past, and nowhere special other than his own backyard, To look up on the particular evening in September 2012, when he believed, according to the so-called Mayan calendar, the world would end. He wanted, as he said, to look up from his own backyard to watch the stars go out. Given that it was a group of scientists and educated folks around the table, he didn't get a great response, and I've always wondered why he would take a cruise with a bunch of skeptics if he believed in the Mayan calendar nonsense. So that's my little tales from the road, if you don't mind including the open ocean as part of the roads. Get well soon, Jeff. Thank you very much, Hal. I remember that incident fondly,
0: I guess. That was was an odd cruise for sure, and some of the folks there were also odd, mostly because I was there. Okay, that's it for me. I'm going to sign off, but before I do, I want to let you know what's about to happen here. Um, I'm going to insert a 15-minute podcast called Oddments. This was my first solo podcast that I did many years ago. It's a magazine-style podcast, much like Built to Go is, but it was focused on curiosity rather than vans. So there's zero van life content, but there are some interesting tidbits here, and I think some of you might like it. So... Give it a listen if you'd like, and I'm sorry the podcast is no longer continued. There's, I think, 22 episodes out there that you can listen to. But I had fun making it, and um, I think some of you might have fun listening to it. I hope to be back next week with a more traditional podcast, but if not, I hope to have some more of you help me out once again. Thank you, take care of yourself, and Happy New Year. Welcome to Oddments, the podcast for curious things and curious people. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This week, some unusual facts about lightning, some problems with Greenland, a mysterious hum on the west coast of the United States, and an overlooked quote from Willy Wonka. Lightning. The sound you're hearing is not lightning. It's thunder. This is a quirk of language where a sound has been removed from the force that creates it. And given that they're often experienced at different times, it makes some sense. That particular piece of thunder is called castle thunder, and it's a staple sound effect that we've all heard many times since its introduction in the 1931 classic film Frankenstein. You may recognize it from Scooby-Doo, Gilligan's Island, or even the Haunted Mansion at Disney Parks. This chamber has no windows and no doors. (laughs) Which offers you this chilling challenge to find a way out. (laughs) Of course, there's
2: always my way.
0: Quite often, it's played concurrently with a flash of lightning on the screen. Of course, you'll probably never hear that sound at the same time you're seeing the lightning that created it, unless you're being struck by it. The delay between the sound of thunder and the light from the flash is due to the distance between you and the bolt. If they happen at the same time, you're very close indeed. Summer is coming to North America and Europe, and we'll soon be seeing heat lightning. That's the colloquial term for lightning that you see lighting up clouds in the sky without producing thunder. Of course, we now know that all lightning creates sound when it superheats molecules of air and they collide into each other. What we call heat lightning is simply lightning that's very high and very far away. We're not close enough to hear the thunder that was definitely created. Lightning still has some mysteries, but what it is is well established. It's static electricity caused by friction in the atmosphere. As warm, moist air moves more and conducts electricity better than cold, dry air, lightning is most commonly associated with tropical climates. That doesn't mean you can't experience thunder snow, where static discharges during winter weather. On average, there are 100 lightning strikes every second somewhere on Earth, but by no means are the strikes evenly distributed. In North America, Florida gets most of the abuse. But Kafuka in the Congo gets 158 strikes per square kilometer each year. In Catatumbo in Venezuela, lightning happens with such regularity that it can be used for navigation. For 160 days a year, 20,000 bolts an hour strike a specific spot where moist air hits the mountains. It's like having fireworks all summer long. Lest you think lightning is nothing more than sometimes dangerous lights and noise, it does serve a useful purpose. Each bolt generates a tiny bit of ozone in the troposphere, which is where it needs to be to protect us from the sun's UV rays. If you're able to attend a College of Curiosity table demonstration, we not only generate lightning, but also demonstrate a lightning detection device popularized by Benjamin Franklin. We hope to see you there. The Problem with Greenland You may have heard the old truism that Greenland isn't green, and Iceland isn't covered with ice. It's actually Iceland that's green, and Greenland is ice-covered. And while you can find ice and greenery in both places, this truism is largely true. When you look at its population of only 57,000 people, it's unusual that so many of us know where Greenland is on a map, not to mention having even heard of such a place. But like the idea that Greenland is particularly green, much of what we know about Greenland is wrong. First off, the map is lying to you. Greenland is big, but not that big. Though a normal map shows Greenland to be about the size of Africa, it's really about the size of the eastern United States. Brazil may look smaller on a map, but it's actually four times larger than Greenland. The problem is with the most common maps we used, called the Mercator projection. By taking a sphere and making it flat, the Mercator projection exaggerates the size of land near the poles. The farther away you are from the equator, the more the exaggeration is. Greenland is quite close to the North Pole, so it has some of the largest distortion. This problem has been known for centuries, and there have been several proposed solutions. One of the more common was Good's homolosine equal area projection. This is the map you've seen that looks like it's cut up and could be folded into a globe, because that's what it is. While it's useful for comparing the size of countries, it's not intuitive for gauging distance, and it's pretty much useless for navigation. Other maps have tried to compensate for this by changing from a rectangle to a diamond or oval shape, but this distorts the lines of longitude which are needed for navigation. If you're a fan of the TV show The West Wing, you may have seen this issue addressed and solved with an ingenious map called the Peter's World Map. It's a rectangular map with straight lines of latitude and longitude, but it stretches the lines of longitude at the poles and at the equator, leaving most land masses accurately displayed. As such, it can be used for navigation, and it shows a much more correct size of landmasses. And of political interest, it is less Eurocentric, displaying Africa as larger and Europe as smaller than on the Mercator projection. This map has been around since 1967, and it's based on an earlier projection from 1855. So why aren't we using this map today? There are people trying to make that happen, but it's caused a huge controversy in the Cartography and Geographic Information Society. After much debate and heated argument, it was ruled... Whereas the Earth is round with a coordinate system composed entirely of circles, and whereas flat world maps are more useful than globe maps, but flattening the globe surface necessarily greatly changes the appearance of Earth's features and coordinate systems, and whereas world maps have a powerful and lasting effect on people's impressions of the shapes and sizes of lands and seas, their arrangement, and the nature of the coordinate system, and... Whereas frequently seeing a greatly distorted map tends to make it look right. Therefore, we strongly urge book and map publishers, the media and government agencies to cease using rectangular world maps for general purposes or artistic displays such maps promote serious erroneous conceptions by severely distorting large sections of the world by showing the round earth as having straight edges and sharp corners by representing most distances and direct routes incorrectly and by portraying the circular coordinate system as a squared grid the most widely displayed rectangular world map is the mercator in fact a navigational diagram devised for nautical charts but other rectangular world maps proposed as replacements for the mercator also display a greatly distorted image of the spherical Earth. So, the Mercator and the Peters projections are out, and maps such as the diamond-shaped sinusoidal equal area projection are in. Except, don't you believe it? Google Maps, arguably the most used map in the world, still uses Mercator projection because it preserves angles, and for the close-up city-scale view that most people use, that's very important. It's also the official map for nautical navigation, so we'll probably be using it as long as we need to display a sphere as a flat object. Back to Greenland. We mentioned that it was mostly covered in ice, but it's more accurate to say that it's mostly made of ice. If you removed all the ice, which global warming just might do for us, it's possible that you'd see three smaller islands depending on sea levels. The West Coast Mystery Hum. The sound you are hearing has caused many sleepless nights along the west coast of the United States. In September of 2012, that loud hum was disturbing people in West Seattle, and residents looking for relief pointed fingers in many different directions. Some blamed construction, others blamed a ship offloading operation, and of course, some blamed a secret government project or an off world source. But the most likely explanation is that the hum they were hearing has the same source as the sound you just heard a fish called the toadfish or midshipman fish. This hand sized bottom dweller can vibrate its swim bladder to produce surprisingly loud noises. When the sound travels through the water and hits an open boat, the boat acts like a speaker and broadcasts the sound through the air. Because of its low tone, it's difficult to pinpoint the source of the sound, and some people claim not to hear it at all, giving those who do hear it the idea that maybe they're going crazy. But they're not. They're just being sung a love song. Yes, that sound means the midshipman fish is ready for love. That's not the only sound they make. If a rival male enters their space, they'll make this sound. That's the get-out-of-here noise, and many residents of Seattle wish they could send that message to all midshipman fish who've chosen the waterways for their annual mating rituals. Midshipman fish get their name from the glowing spots on their sides and bottom that are said to resemble the two rows of gleaming buttons on a midshipman's uniform. They use these lights to attract prey, which are dramatically sucked into their oversized mouths. It needs to be said that many people don't think the source of the hum is fish at all. Scientists actually looking for the fish to study their mating habits were unable to find them in the area where the hum is reported, even with a hydrophone. If the sound is caused by the fish, they're doing a good job of hiding. As yet, the only solution to the problem of the annoying hum is to mask the sound with music, a fan, or perhaps the mating sounds of actual midshipmen. Where's the chocolate?
1: I doubt if there is any. I doubt if any of us will get out of here alive. Oh, you should never, never doubt what nobody is sure about.
0: That quote may seem like just a throwaway line from the movie, but it's actually part of a 1912 poem by Hilaire Belloc called The Microbe. A French expatriate living in England. Bellock is most famous for his work, Cautionary Tales for Children, which includes such stories as Rebecca, who slammed doors for fun and perished miserably, and Algernon, who played with a loaded gun and, on missing his sister, was reprimanded by his father. That complete work has been set to music and more recently read in an audiobook by Stephen Fry. None other than Edward Gorey illustrated it, echoing his own work of the Gashley Crumb Tinies. Here is the entire poem which apparently Mr. Wonka was so fond of. The Microbe The microbe is so very small, you cannot make him out at all. But many sanguine people hope to see him through a microscope. His jointed tongue that lies beneath a hundred curious rows of teeth. His seven tufted tails with lots of lovely pink and purple spots. On each of which a pattern stands, composed of forty separate bands. His eyebrows of a tender green, all these have never yet been seen. But scientists who ought to know assure us that they must be so. Oh, let us never, never doubt what nobody is sure about. Belloc was a very religious man, and it's quite possible that he was poking fun at the scientific community here for some discoveries that may not have been in line with his beliefs. At any rate, we know that microbes are real, though they have probably never been seen quite as described in this poem. That's all for this week's Oddments. Thank you very much for listening, and thanks to everyone who submitted ideas for this week's episode. Show notes are available at collegeofcuriosity.com.